Thank you, Patrick, for having me. Thank you, uh, Mr. Kinsella, for uh, joining us. So uh, I just want to start off with uh, definitions. In 2003, uh, Stefan Kinsella in the Journal of Libertarian Studies defined a contract as a relation between two or more parties, which includes legally enforceable obligations between them. Breach of contract I have defined as an unjustifiable failure to perform under the terms of a contract when performance is due and the Merriam-Webster Dictionary of a meeting of the minds, which is an understanding or agreement between two people or groups. So imagine if you have a landscaper coming to your house and you say, uh, hey, how much do you charge? He says 50 bucks. You say that works. The guy does it and you say, all right, well, I now have you in my will for $50. So when I die in, you know, 20, 60, uh, 100 years, then you will get the $50. Well, Technically, you did not specify an exact time in which you would give it to him. Maybe you said after the work is done. Well, in 50 years from now, it will still be after the work is done. But this gets us into this trivial technicality child's game of, well, you didn't technically say that. This is what I generally believe uh, tech giants such as... Um, well, that's sort of like the robber barons trying to belittle them. Let's just say Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube social media organizations are engaged in when they try and get you on some little technicality. Another uh, way we could uh, have this is, let's say you uh, go to Red Robin and order something off the menu, but in the fine print on the menu it says, anyone who orders something, we get to charge a thousand extra dollars to their credit card for a well-being fee for the well-being of the nation and everyone around them. This, again, is a breach of contract, even if there is technically a uh, way out for them to justify their behavior. You also have explicit expressions from people like Jack Dorsey, who October 5th, 2015, saying, Twitter stands for freedom of expression. We stand for speaking truth to power. We stand for empowering dialogue. In other words, in order to incentivize people to come onto the platform, put effort into... Uh, putting their content on here, he's saying, well, we'll allow you to do this so long as you don't, you know, uh, violate things like advocating violence, you know, totally giving out someone's information to the point where they're in danger because, you know, there's some Antifa person following anyone. Uh, this, I would also, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's an explicit breach, but this is a general meeting of the minds. So if you order something from a restaurant and then they hand you the bill and you say, I never said I would pay, well, there's a general understanding. I think this general understanding or meeting of the minds should apply between users of the platforms as well as the platform owners. Uh, so all you would really have to do if you wanted to say something like we can ban anyone or we can exclude people uh, who are, you know, leftists or rightists or anything else, you would just have to, you would have an obligation to make that very clear and upfront. We see this in the market all over. For example, at last chance in Arizona, there's a big sign that says no refunds, no exchanges, all sales final. You sometimes get warnings on Google Drive, warning the trash is changing in the next 30 days. The trash mechanism will be different. You have don't touch signs. You have no picture signs. There, so instead of you know them trying to get you on a technicality, waiting for you to do something, they're explicitly telling you, here's the idea. So if they had explicitly come out and said, yet we only platform right winger, uh, we only platform left wingers, and anyone who questions the election, anyone in the future, 
we're going to ban you. If they said that before you created an account, I would think that it's more morally justified. So the uh, existence of these bad actors, I of course don't think justifies the existence of a state or some people having the right to initiate aggression uh, any more than bad marriages justify the state arranging marriages. So the last thing we want to do is advocate uh, social media regulation you have examples of even the government in America that has to follow the First Amendment. Well, you have examples of L. Paul Bremer ordering the U.S. military to um, outlaw an Iraqi newspaper. You have the Kent State murders where the Ohio National Guard killed four people for speaking out against Vietnam. You have the Obama administration using the Espionage Act to go after whistleblowers, Snowden, Assange, Manning, Thomas Jake, James Rosen, Jeff Sterling. You have Operation Mockingbird where they're planting fake stories in the media. So I'm I'm saying, one, we need to recognize this as illegitimate. And two, the last thing we need to do is advocate any sort of regulation. Colonel Anthony Schaefer's book, Operation Dark Heart, was silenced by the Pentagon. Um, also, you have regulatory capture. The Federal Reserve famously written by some of the most famous bankers on J.P. Morgan's property in Jekyll Island. I don't think we need to call them uh, monopolies that we should fear. MySpace, Blockbuster, Sears, Starbucks, those were all terrible monopolies we need to uh, regulate. But, you know, alternatives end up coming up Uh only 60 companies in the Fortune 500 were also in the Fortune 500 in the years 1955 and 2016. So there is a market mechanism. Another reason we should reject regulation is a uh, study, The Impact of Regulatory Costs on Small Firms by Nicole Crane and Mark Crane. This is from a 2010 study from the U.S. Small Business Administration. A big corporation, defined as 500 employees or more, pays about $7,700 per employee per regulation. Small firms, 20 employees or less, spend about $10,500 per employee per regulation. The last thing I want people to hear when I say these companies are engaging in immoral activity is therefore we need to regulate them. We can bash private companies all day long like Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, the military industrial complex without advocating uh, government intervention, just as we can criticize uh, movies or relationships without saying, therefore, the state should violently dominate marriages. The solution, I think, is for us to go to alternatives such as archive.org, odyssey.com, minds.com, locals.com is a good replacement for Patreon. Start page is a good replacement for Google, along with DuckDuckGo, and MeWe.com is a good option for people leaving Twitter. Uh, and I'd say Odyssey is probably my favorite for uh, people getting silenced on YouTube. So generally, you see the pattern since the days of Socrates, you know, slavery advocates have tried to silence free thinkers or freedom advocates, just as we see with Alex Jones, Molyneux, the conscious resistance, um, world Art alternative media. Uh, I think it's a breach of contract because it does not respect the general understanding between two parties involved in the action, although not explicit and sometimes can be called off with a technicality in the terms of agreement. I think it's unlibertarian because it doesn't recognize this voluntary uh, agreement as legitimate. Therefore, it should be seen as unlibertarian and the solution is to get on alternatives and subscribe to our uh, favorite content creators. All right. So there's a lot of, there's three really big brained cooks in this kitchen or at least two. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I don't want to, let me lay out my little two minute position then I'll give it to Kinsella. So 
basically the meeting of the minds thing is what a contract was, you know, is, is for it's to clarify the gray areas around what people would have in their heads subjectively coming away from an agreement. You, you walk up, you make an agreement with somebody, you shake hands, you walk away and instantly you have potential conflicts because you know, how can we be sure what was in the other guy's head? How can we be sure what their version of the meeting of the minds was? Well, well, we write it down. That's how we do it. And so when you have something written down, that becomes the best uh, explanation for what the meeting of the minds was. And if I can't write something down explicitly that says I can kick you off my servers anytime I want um, for any reason I want and, oh, I can change the reasons by which I will kick you off my servers anytime I want and that's written in black and white, well, I don't see how you can sort of wash away the words that I took the time to write out explicitly for you by saying, oh, well, that's not what was in my head when I started using your servers. Um, and then finally, I'll say uh, it, it, it's their servers. And so at any time they can change the terms that uh, that they want to continue allowing you use you to use their property, especially if it's said so in the upfront contract. So like if if um, you were renting my house and I we had a lease agreement that says, you know, I, I can uh, end this lease with a 30 day notice anytime I want. Um, and e even though you've spent maybe five years living here and fixing up your room and painting the walls and arranging your stuff really nice and you're used to using it. Well, it was in our agreement that said I could evict you within 30 days for any reason I wanted to, um, to continue forcing me to let you use my property would be to sort of enslave me, at least in that way. Okay, so that's my piece. I will, uh, let's toss it to Mr. Kinsella here. What do you have to say, sir? Uh, all right. I think we're gonna have to go through libertarian theory of property and contract to sort this out. Uh, but a couple of preliminary comments. And guys, feel free to interrupt me because this might be a long sort of mini lecture and I don't want to dominate <laughs> too much. Um, Those are the best kinds. <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, we're talking about libertarian issues. And so I would say, first of all, even in the conventional understanding of contracts and breach of contract, it's not unlibertarian to breach a contract. Uh, I'm not even sure it's unlibertarian to commit aggression. It just means that there are certain consequences under the law, which is justified by libertarian principles. But it's certainly not li unlibertarian to breach a contract. Breach of contract just means if you breach it, then there are certain consequences, uh, usually damage, uh, payment of monetary damages for breach. So it's not unlibertarian to breach a contract at all. Um, so the question is, is this breach of contract? So I think some of your uh, – so Keith – in my 2003 article, which is on my website, it, it was basically an elaboration and extension of Rothbard's and Evers' view of contract. Um, the part you quoted was not my view or Rothbard's view. I was just stating what the conventional view of contracts are. So the conventional view of contracts, uh, the view prevalent in the law today, and the view that most laymen hold, which you guys sort of seem to hold too, is that we view contracts as obligations. Uh, or binding promises, right? So you promise to do something, and if you do it in a certain way with certain formalities like consideration or detrimental reliance or uh, other formalities in the civil law, then that obligation or that promise is enforceable. It's a binding obligation. And then that gives rise to the 
if you have, which means if you don't perform the obligation that you promised to perform, then that's a breach, and then damages have to be paid according to the the consequences of that breach uh, to the to the party that was owed the obligation. Um, the problem with that view of contract, um, there's many problems with it. One problem is it leads to voluntary slavery contracts because if I promise to be your slave, then I have to be your slave, and if I don't, I'm a breach of contract. And theoretically, force can be used against me to make me comply. That's called specific performance in contract law. Um, Rothbard came along and had a re one of his revolutionary ideas, I think, was his reformulation of contract law. It's usually attributed to Evers, Williamson Evers, which Rothbard expanded upon. But I wrote, I've got some uh, some blog posts and a, and a I've actually got an interview with Bill Evers on my on my website under my podcast page, where I talked to him about that. Basically, Rothbard in like 1974 saw the glimmers of a way to reformulate contract law. He discussed it with Evers. Then Evers wrote his pioneering article, which was in the first issue of the Journal of Libertarian Studies, and then. So basically, Evers and Rothbard together came up with a different view of contracts, which is not binding promises. And the reason for that is that prom promises are just free speech. They're just things you say. Okay. Strictly speaking, the libertarian view of when force can be used is only us to initiated force or aggression. Right. And if I just make a promise to you, I'm not committing force. And if I don't do what I promised I would do. I'm not committing force, so no force is used as justified against me. So the entire promise-based theory of contract uh, makes no sense from a libertarian point of view. Um, so some people rely, as the law does, on a backup theory, the equitable doctrine of estoppel, which is that if you say something and someone else relies upon that statement to their detriment, then then it's like an enforceable promise because then you've harmed them if you don't perform what you said you were because the other person put themselves in a position to rely upon it. Now they're going to be harmed if you don't do it. But that, of course, is circular too. As Rayman Legal Scholar points out in his long – his own theory of contract, which I don't completely agree with, but it also deviates from the conventional view. Um, he points out that the detrimental reliance view of making promises enforceable is circular because the law always says that the reliance is reasonable, okay? But reliance is not reasonable if the law doesn't enforce binding promise or promises, if it doesn't make them binding. So it's a circular thing. Like if the, if you know the law is going to make a promise someone else said enforceable, then it's reasonable to rely upon it, okay? But then it's already enforceable, so we don't need the question. And if it's not legally enforceable, if promises are not legally enforceable, if they don't give rise to binding obligations, then it's not reasonable to rely upon it, and then that's no basis to make them binding in the first place. So what Rothbard says is, look, we have to step back and think, what's the essence of libertarianism? It's basically all rights – all human rights are, are – all rights are human rights, and all human rights are property rights because every dispute between people is always a clash of scarce means, which are always physical things in the world, and they always get solved with either some kind of voluntary cooperation solution mechanism or with physical violence and force, right? Physical force used against other people's body or against their things to take it. Um, like if someone steals my watch, I might use force to get it back, or if they if they if they physically attack my body, I might use physical force to punish them or to to drive them away. So it's always about physical force and all property rights are always property rights that human beings 
use to control scarce resources in the world. So the fundamental concept of all libertarianism is rights, and all rights are property rights. So the fundamental concept is property, not contract. Now, what is contract? Owning a resource simply means that you have the right to – you have the exclusive right to decide who gets to use it. Okay, So I own my body, so I, that's called a self-owner. So I own my body for various reasons in libertarian theory, and I also own physical scarce resources that I come to acquire either by homesteading them from the state of nature because they're previously unowned, like an apple or a piece of land um, or milk from a cow or water from a pond, something like that. Um, or iron I take from the ground, or a limb from a tree that I take and make into a staff or a spear, things like that. So, or, or that I acquire a previous owner by what? By contract, or in other words, by voluntary transfer of ownership. Okay, so contract is just the exercise of ownership by the owner. It's the decision of the owner about whether and how much to allow other people to use your resource. You can even think of that. As applying to invitations. So, for example, if I invite a girl to kiss me, when she kisses me, it's not assault and battery or sexual assault. It's consented to by me, okay? Because I'm the owner. I get to. But on the other hand, if I don't consent to it, it is a type of assault and battery. Likewise, if I invite someone into my house, um, it's consent. It's called, it's called a license in the law. License is granted. Uh, it's permission. Okay, so the owner gets to deny or grant permission, and also you can make that permanent in the case of alienable owned resources like a car or a home. You can, you can state words that indicate your intention to grant consent for someone to have it forever. In other words, you effectively abandon your ownership of that thing in favor of someone else, and now they become the new owner. That's why the only two ways to acquire ownership of things is either by finding it in the wilderness that's unowned or by contract. Uh, actually, creation is not a source of ownership. You can't own something because you create it because you can only create something by rearranging materials into a new form, but you either had to own those materials before or you didn't. If you do, then you own the thing that you rearrange it into because you own the, the, the raw materials, the factors of production that go into it, and if you didn't, then you don't own it. So like an employee on an assembly line making a car for Henry Ford does not own the cars that come off of it. Contra the labor theory of value and the Marxists who think he does. That's why he's exploited when there's a profit made and some of his labor surplus value is taken from him by the evil, greedy capitalists. Okay, so all this ties in together. So basically, under my theory and under Rothbard's, I don't think he stated it clearly, there is no such thing as breach of contract because there's no obligation to perform. Okay, obligations are out the window. That's a, that's a legal concept, and that's an old-fashioned concept. Uh, and by the way, even the law doesn't regard con contracts really as binding obligations because they almost never award what's called specific performance. So if I promise to do something for you, like to paint your fence or to sing at your wedding or something like that, and I fail to do it, they call it a breach, but the court won't compel me with a coercive threat of force to sing at the wedding or to paint the fence, they will simply order me to pay some monetary damages to the party that I've breached, um, uh, measured by how much damage or harm I did to them. Right, that's called consequential damages, what the consequences are. So in reality, even under the obligations or binding promises theory of contract, they're really only transfers of title to property, which is what Rothbard thinks. Contracts are only 
transfers of title to property. Or you could think of them, as I said, um, a, per, a license or permission to use your property. Like I can let you borrow my car. I can let you come into my house to have dinner with me, something like that. Or I can let you come into my restaurant to have a meal, or I can let you come into my shopping mall to shop and buy clothes, etc. Okay, but just as the girl who agrees to let her date kiss her at any time on the date, she can change her mind at any point in time because she still owns her body. And when she changes her mind and he kisses her anyway, he can't say, I have consent because earlier she promised she would let me kiss her because she changed her mind. And the relevant consent is the most recent consent. By changing her mind, she doesn't violate his rights. Okay, In fact, he violates her rights by kissing her without his consent. Likewise, if I invite you into my home… Uh, you, you're not committing trespass because you're there by permission, but if I change my mind and eject you, then I'm not violating your rights. And I can do that without having fine print and a contract saying, when I invite you into my home, I reserve the right to kick you out. The presumption is that I have that right all the time because I'm always the owner, so I can always change my mind. Um, in a contract to transfer ownership of property… Let's take a service contract. Um, I promise to paint your fence. Now, this is under Rothbard's and my theory. Uh, you want me to paint your fence, and you're going to pay me $1,000 to do it. So most people view that as an exchange or a trade because economically it is. Like I'm getting the value of the money, and the, and, and the, and the customer is getting the value of my services. And therefore, people think of services as being sold, okay? Which is, and then they start you thinking of services as being an owned thing, and therefore you can sell your labor, and therefore if you own your labor, you can own ideas, and intellectual property comes from this. But this is a confusion. Um, in a normal exchange, I exchange an apple for an orange. Though there is a, a bilateral mutual exchange of titles. Two titles are being exchanged, both reciprocal and dependent upon each other. Um, but not all contracts – and that's an economic exchange and a legal exchange. But in a contract for sale of services, it's only a legal exchange. I'm sorry. It's only a, an economic exchange, and that just means the motivations of the actors are explained this way. The reason why I give you my services, why I paint your fence, is to get the money. The reason why you give me the money is to get my services. Okay, so that's just the reason. You're explaining the reasons of human action, uh, the purpose. Um, but legally, there is only one title exchange. That is this exchange of the money. The transfer of the money from the customer to me. When I paint his fence, I don't transfer any owned object to him. I simply perform an, an, an action that he desires me to perform. He induces me to perform it by transferring conditionally some of his money to me and so on. Okay, This is how we view contracts. And so in that case, if I fail to paint the fence… It's not a breach. It's just that I don't perform the action. That's the conditional trigger for the transfer of money to me. I just failed to perform one of the triggers or the conditions that would transfer the money to me. Remember, the transfer of money, the $1,000 payment, is conditional. It's, it's a future-based conditional transfer of title that's conditioned upon me performing a certain action. If I don't perform that action, then… I'm not in breach. Now, if the customer wants to be sure that I paint the fence because he needs it painted before a party, and if I back out, it's going to harm him, then we can put in the contract another transfer of title, which is me, the painter. I conditionally transfer some money to him, which we can call damages, um, in the event that I don't paint the fence. So that gives me an economic incentive to actually perform, and if I don't perform, I owe money to the customer. 
Okay, now that's what would happen under the standard uh, conventional view of contracts. I would be viewed as being in breach, and I would have to pay damages to the customer. But under the title transfer theory, we just have a condition in the contract um, that I have to – he has to pay me money if I paint, and if I fail to paint, I have to pay him money. Okay, now we can either negotiate that explicitly or we can, we can, we can leave it up to custom, which fills in – gaps in contracts. Now, Patrick, you implied that contracts are written. Uh, contracts are not always written and don't have to be written. Quite often they're written, and quite often the writing is the best evidence is the term you were looking for when you said best something else. Um, it is often the best evidence of what the meeting of the minds is, but it's not always because sometimes you can have a, a simulation, a fake contract, or sometimes you can have a, an oral or verbal agreement outside that written which contradicts that or fills it in or changes something and that would be the contract then contracts can be verbal and they don't even need to be verbal they can be purely non non nonverbal for example if i'm in france and i don't speak french and buy a newspaper or a candy bar i point at the candy bar on the shelf he understands my meaning he hands it to me i give him uh i give him a euro and we make the exchange and i walk away so in all contracts, there is what's called communication. So that's what's that's what's the best, that's where the meaning of the minds idea comes about. So all contracts involve communication, and the reason they involve communication is because all contracts involve at least one transfer of title to a resource. And again, the owner of a resource, the property owner of the resource, uh, has the right to grant or deny someone else the right to use it, or to even sell it completely, but that requires some kind of manifestation of their consent. It requires a communication, but that can be done by your action. It can be done by a written agreement, or it can be done by even people being silent and assuming that the background set of assumptions and condition and implicit customs and traditions in the area are going to be used to, to fill in any uncertainties. And by the way, all contracts, even written ones that are 100 pages long, they always are incomplete because the future is uncertain, and it's never possible to account for every possible thing that might happen. So every contract, either explicitly or implicitly, has to, uh, has to presuppose good faith between the parties and the willingness to resort to some kind of what we call gap filler principles or suppletive provisions to solve a dispute when it wasn't provided for explicitly in the oral communications or in the writing, the written contract. And so normally that's what's going on customarily or what's reasonable or what a jury would say or what an what a, what a, what arbitrator would say. Okay, so I have nothing against implicit provisions in contracts at all, which Keith was talking about. Um, however, I do think that some fine print in contracts is probably not enforceable, and I've got an article on this on my website. Um, you know, if you just do a click through a click a click through type agreement on a website to accept their services, and buried in clause 128, which no one reads, is a provision saying, "By the way, you owe me a million dollars for life." That's not going to be enforceable because there was really no meeting of the minds, and the other side knows that. They just snuck it in there. It's not in good faith. And so I don't think that the writing should be 100% dispositive of the actual meeting of the minds because there could be unreasonable provisions in these contracts. Um, so now we come to the question of uh, using a social media platform like, a, like Google or, 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 or Facebook or Twitter uh, or YouTube and… 
I don't think there's a contract at all except in the sense of inviting someone to your house. Okay, so they're basically allowing you to use their services as long as they want, and they can kick you out at any time, just like you can kick a rude dinner guest out of your house at any time, even if you didn't post a notice saying, I reserve the right to eject rude dinner guests. They can change – and by the way, I believe the terms of service of all these platforms probably do have a provision anyway, and they're saying we reserve the right to modify these terms uh, at any time in our discretion. So they already have that in there anyway. Um, so the question is, is there a breach of contract at all? I mean there's no transfer of title. They're not demanding monetary payment from you as a customer. Usually these are free services anyway, so there's no transfer There's no transfer of title from you, the customer, to them. You're not paying them anything. Um, they're not transferring any kind of title to you, to anything. They're simply letting you use their servers temporarily and as long as they want to. Okay. The only way there could be a breach of contract um, would be if you paid them, and there was a, a written agreement or some kind of agreement where they promised you for an amount of time um, no matter what. Uh, but they would never do that anyway. They would always reserve the right to kick you off, and maybe they would have to refund you your, your remaining subscription amount or something like that. But again, it wouldn't even be breach of contract. It would just be a contractually negotiated transfer of title to this monetary payment or to the refund of a monetary payment that was already made. Um, let me see if I have any other notes here I wanted to get to. Um, I don't know if we're going to have time to or should touch on this argument a lot of people be making about regulations, which centers around the CDA and the DMCA, the Communications Decency Act and the D Digital Millennium Copyright Act of the late 90s under Bill Clinton, which basically gave us harbor these platforms like ISPs and now these other platforms like YouTube and um, um, uh, Facebook and Google and Twitter uh, and blogs, blogging platforms, which basically exempted them from liability for defamation basically in the case of the CDA and for copyright infringement in the case of the DMCA done by their users um, so long as they take down the offending content in the case of copyright. Uh, when they're asked to by the alleged copyright holder, which is why YouTube has this strikes thing where they can get they can remove your content if someone complains. They have to do that to maintain their safe safe harbor of liability. And many people claim that that's an unfair privilege granted to these companies because they are acting more like publishers instead of neutral platforms like the telephone company is, and they're they're actually starting to edit uh, to censor and edit and maintain content control over what's being posted, and that wasn't part of the deal. However, that is a conventional mainstream view that we libertarians can't make because um, defamation law shouldn't exist in the first place. No one should be liable for defamation at all, and copyright shouldn't exist, so no one should be liable for that in the first place. So it's not an unfair privilege granted to these companies. They shouldn't be – I mean if you argue that the CDA – Safe Harbor and the DMCA Safe Harbor should be removed from these companies because they're acting like publishers, not as mere neutral platforms now. What you're saying is the state should come in and, and, and impose defamation and copyright liability on them for the, for the vicariously for the acts of their subscribers or their customers called by wrong. They should be immune from liability for these actions since these these laws are completely unjust and unlibertarian. Um, so I would agree that they shouldn't be regulated for that reason as well. And I also agree with Keith that, yeah, the solution is to just switch to other platforms, and that's that's the ultimate threat. And I think these companies are harming themselves um, right now because 
uh, they're going to they're going to lose big time if people start fleeing because their monopoly their networking mark monopoly position is not guaranteed as you see with MySpace and with uh, what were the others that 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 have crumbled in the past um, um, you know uh, and that have fallen to the the current the current holders of these of these uh, um, uh, yeah so I think MeWe and locals and all these others are a big threat to them and they're gonna they might lose their monopoly. Uh, if they keep acting like uh, you know, tech liberal censor idiots who piss off their customers, um, so okay, and so I also I, don't, I, I don't, okay, I'll stop here. Go ahead. Uh, no, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, so I, I wanted to kind of do one more around the table on this, and then I also have prepared if we want to or have time for it. I have um, a, a few paragraphs from Jeff Deist of the Mises Institute on. Uh, their recent banning on why it's unlibertarian for them to do so. And I also have Molyneux's argument written down here. So um, okay. uh, maybe maybe Keith and I do one more round table, like circle around with this. And then depending on how the conversation looks, we can also rope in these other arguments that we've heard. Um, my right. comments are that I pretty much agree with everything that you have said on contract law, as well as you know, the, the conceptions um, as as presented, especially the part, the part that I was looking for you to present was the part where if you expect damages to come out of not fulfilling the terms of a contract that you uh, have to put that in the contract. So if I don't perform the action I agreed to, what happens? That has to be part of the contract. Otherwise, otherwise. Let, let me let, let me make one clarification. Let me make one clarification there. Um, I don't think you have to put it in the contract explicitly. I think it's a good idea. Uh, I think I do believe there are implicit there can be implicit uh, terms of contracts. Uh, it depends upon the custom and the and the kind of default understanding of the parties. It's just harder to prove. Um, but in that case, you would say it's part of the contract. It was just implicit. Uh, and the uh, let's see, I had, th I had three notes. That was the first one. The second one was I didn't mean to imply that written contracts were the only valid one. Right. Um, I, I just meant that it was the the prime purpose of making it a written contract was kind of twofold one to make the terms more explicit and two to sort of freeze those terms in time so that um you know there's a point in time where you can prove at least what part of the agreement was um right. and then the, the third note was i think i disagree with you on the million dollars in the fine print thing and maybe that's a conversation for another day because it's not really germane to the social media banning stuff but uh, or maybe it is i i i think if i if 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 I go out of my way to write something down and it's just like, I don't know, through laziness on the part of the person signing the contract, uh, that they don't, that they aren't aware of the terms. Like what's the point in writing this stuff down if we're not going to be held to the terms of the things that we wrote down? Oh, I just didn't read that. Like what? I, I don't, I don't understand that. Maybe you could speak to that more or if yep. it's going to be a longer term thing, if it's, if it's a longer conversation, I'm happy to invite you back and we can dive into it then. Uh, those are mm -hmm. my three things. Keith, do you want to, um, have why don't you have your response and we'll go back to to Stefan here. Yeah, I just want to get uh, clarification uh, by uh, Mr. Kinsella. Do you agree that libertarianism, Rothbardianism, is a sy systematic law code derived by means of logical deduction from a single principle? being original appropriation, ownership of scarce resources, the right of an exclusive control over scarce resources, private property? Uh, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Okay. 
especially so the last my, part. Yes. Yeah. So my reasoning is that original appropriation is the foundation of libertarianism, which brings us to uh, the ownership of one's own body. You have an objective link because you have direct control over it. Only others can indirectly control your body by first directly exercising their own scarce resources, their body. Mm -hmm. This gives us the right to acquire property through the homesteading original appropriation principle by having a better claim to being the first comer. This then gives us the right to delegate the property once we are the rightful owners, and such delegation can include an easement, such as giving you an easement to my servers and thus giving me an obligation to respect that agreement because I voluntarily made the decision to create such a general understanding to give you access to my scarce resources under general, uh, generally recognized terms. Uh, does my uh, logic fall short there? I think uh, in principle, that's a good argument. Now, imagine… But, but – no, go ahead. Uh, I, I was going to say, uh, well, the analogy that I would use, it really is the fact that people put so much effort into building their content on these platforms under the assumption they'll be there so long as you don't start posting, uh, you know, pornographic images of uh, people underage advocating violence, etc. So imagine uh, I invite a ton of people to my house for uh, a wedding and I just say, you know what, you don't have to pay me, I like you guys, come over. So everyone gets a plane ticket, everyone flies out, and I say, you know what, I heard the groom voted for Trump the day that everyone is there waiting to come in and I go, no, I'm going to exclude you. Now, it met your previous criteria of, well, they're not accepting payment from you, but it's not the payment, it is the general understanding between the two parties that creates an right. obligation on me, the homeowner. So uh, this is sort of the analogy that I come to uh, when trying right. to understand the principal justification for determining a moral exclusion of property, the right to exclude people from platforms, and the immoral exclusion. Well, okay, so that argument is probably the best one you can make. Uh, uh, so theoretically, if Facebook – so this idea that you own your, your, your domain or you own your, your page on Facebook is, is not coherent in libertarian terms because you can only own scarce resources. So really, really the only thing that's owned here are the physical computers that Facebook owns. Now, they're connected to the internet, and they, they do certain things, but they own their servers. That's all they own, right? Um, and all you own is your computer. And – in in theory, Facebook could grant an easement to a customer, which they give in effect partial ownership, partial physical actual ownership of those servers to their customers. Okay, so in that case, then if Facebook denies me access to it, they're actually committing a type of trespass to me by taking my property from me or denying me access to my property, which is part of the part of their server. Um, you can ha you have this in community in neighborhoods when people uh, restrictive covenants in neighborhoods like associations where everyone agrees not to use their house for certain purposes or for a business or to paint it a garish color they all agree in, in usually writing property and in those types of um, anything any any agreement affecting real property typically that is uh, land or homes attached to it has to be done in writing um, that's the parole evidence rule or something like that statute statute of frauds um, 
um, you can grant a permanent easement. Okay, so you would have to argue that there is an easement granted by Facebook to their servers, to their customers. Now, it's not in writing. I can guarantee you that. So you'd have to say it's implicit by the understanding of the parties because of the arguments you gave. Uh, if you could go to a tribunal and and persuade a jury or the arbitrators to interpret the unwritten agreement between the parties that way, then I would agree. That's a libertarian result, and you now you own part of Facebook's property. Uh, your co-owners with Facebook of their servers. I just don't think that argument can fly for several reasons. Number one, I am sure Facebook has in their terms of service that you look at when you sign on to become a customer that they can change the terms of service anytime, and that would imply that that they can if they if they need like if a if if a decision of an of an arbitrator goes against them, then they would simply amend their terms of service going forward to say. And by the way, we're not granting anyone an easement. We can kick you out at any time, even though you put a lot of effort into it. So I think that is the actual default understanding, um, especially because right now we've seen thousands of people be kicked off. We all know that happens, so we know that it's not a contractual term. So if you if you sign on to a Facebook uh, and start a page there, you're doing it at your own risk. Okay, It's like called coming to the nuisance or assumption of risk. It's that kind of idea. Um, so I just don't think as a factual matter that they have agreed to that, and I don't think the customers think they've agreed to it. Um, and even if a, a court or an arbitral tri tribunal decided the, the quote wrong way uh, and made Facebook liable, um, I think they would just amend their terms of service to clarify going forward. That's how contracts get so long is because um, over time, different court decisions are made, and the lawyers wake up and realize this, and they start trying to contract around that. So that's why you have all this fine print and these weird legal provisions and contracts. They grow, and they grow, and they develop over time. And then, and then the court law, the case law, takes that into account and moves on its own going forward. So I simply think that um, um, it's, it's like if you invite someone to your house for a dinner party… Uh, you can kick them out. Uh, the case of the wedding, we, I think that takes us too far afield. We could discuss that if you wanted to, but I think that takes us afield. Um, I can let you guys talk again if you want or ask questions, or I can address the fine print thing that, that Patrick talked about real quickly. I don't think it would take too long, Patrick. Um, I, I have probably 45 minutes of <laughs> questions and comments happening right now, right, so fine. We, we should try Go and ahead. maybe we save that one for Go later. Ahead. Keith, you were about to say something? I was uh, just going to say the reason that I use the wedding analogy instead of the inviting someone over for dinner analogy is mm -hmm, certainly mm -hmm. the amount of uh, resources that it takes uh, or that yep. it uh, stresses a person for engaging in the activity. Uh, you inviting me over and then saying, screw you when I get to the door. That's disappointing, but that's me wasting yes. an hour or two of my day. The whole wet, the purpose of yes. the wedding analogy is a massive amount of resource allocation towards achieving yes. a generally understood goal. And right. it, that I really think is analogous to, I mean, look at the amount of hours Tim Pool has like three hours a day on YouTube yep. and Twitter and stuff. Yep. And it yep. takes a lot to build that follow. That's why I don't consider yep. it an abusive analogy. All right, let me... So I think the only thing is a one-off thing where it's millions of people and it's continuing over time so we can kind of see patterns and things like that. Um, um, and the other problem is you're sort of making an argument like this detrimental reliance argument, which which is used in contract law as a backstop to the 
conventional theory saying that you detrimental you relied upon something to your detriment. So you could say that just by the nature of this arrangement, Facebook knows a lot of people upon their presence of their page and they put a lot of effort into it. Therefore, we should kind of hold them to something like a quasi-contract because of reliance. But as I said, and again, look at Randy Barnett's article. It's just a footnote on it, but it's it's pretty understood that detrimental reliance is just circular. Um, here's a better way to think about it. Suppose – take my painting the fence example. Suppose you want your fence painted before this party you're having, so you hire me, and I say I'll – if you pay me $1,000, I'll paint the fence. But – and you say, well, are you going to guarantee you're going to paint the fence? Because if you don't paint, the screwed. And I say, well, no, I'm not guaranteeing it, but if I paint it, you have to pay me 1000 And you say, well, I need you to guarantee it, so I need you to promise to pay me uh, $2,000 in damages if you don't paint the fence. Now, I'm thinking, well, now the cost to me of painting the fence is higher. Because that and provide the materials. Now I'm, I have a possible liability. Like suppose I get in a car wreck and I can't paint the fence, and I'm on the hook for two thousand dollars. That's a cost to me. So I'm going to say, well, I'll give you that guarantee, but only if you pay me eleven hundred dollars to paint the fence. In other words, if the homeowner who's getting the service done wants the guarantee, he needs to pay more. Like so, in other words. It's like buying insurance in a sense. So the analogy to the Facebook thing would be, you know, I want to build this page and I want to make sure Facebook can't take it away from me. How could I do that? I have to negotiate with them that they have to pay me some kind of monetary damages and a lot if they kick me off for no good reason. Facebook's only going to do that if I pay them to take on that hassle of that reciprocal insurance obligation. So. Now instead of getting Facebook for free, I've got to pay them 100 bucks a month. How many of these people doing their Facebook pages would actually pay even a dollar? Because most people are cheapskates or poor right? that use Facebook. So I'd say the, the old idea of caveat emptor, buyer beware. You, know, you only get what you, what you pay for. If you want this kind of guarantee, you need to pay for it. Um, and I think that's what would happen in, in reality. So I think that if Facebook was held liable in some kind of uh, weird court decision, they would just change their contract, their terms of service, to make sure that they're not doing that. And then you would know for sure you're not getting that guarantee, and you would have to do it at your own risk. I assume you would agree that if if you use Facebook to form your community and your webpage, and Facebook tells you explicitly, listen, we could jerk the rug out from under you at any time. And we don't owe you a single cent. We're, we might even be capricious about it, so use our service at your own risk. Then I assume you agree that there would be no breach of contract there. And I think that's the default understanding now because that's what they're doing, and everyone knows that. I think yes, that's why – th that's just – yeah. Th that's why I brought up the examples of very often uh, when there's not a general agreement on certain things, organizations will make explicit – no touching wet paint. Do not touch this piece of architecture. Do not take pictures of this. No refunds, no exchanges. This happens all the time. So we should just expect this of media, of social media organizations. And then you explicitly have Jack Dorsey talking about how Twitter stands for freedom of expression on October 5th, 20. 
2015. We stand for speaking the truth to power and we stand for empowering dialogue. I mean, when that is the generally communicated idea, that is the standard we should hold them accountable to. Now, as far as I'm so afraid of giving the state a micrometer of power, I don't even know if I would support, you know, taking money from them, uh, even if we do uh, decide that this is a breach of uh, contract. I think we just need to recognize it as uh, but, uh, as being uh, un- unjustifiable and a uh, severe mistreatment of uh, people who do not have a lot of ability to influence uh, uh, others in their lives. So uh, you-, you can just look at it as, you know, the psycho-manipulative spouse who, though there should this doesn't mean there should be rules about marriages right. and government gets to regulate marriages, we as libertarians need to be at the front lines recognizing why this is wrong and why the solution is to embrace alternatives. So um, th- as far as breach of contract, do, uh, are you saying that no breach of contract can even exist? Again, the definition I'm working with is an unjustifiable failure to perform under the terms right. of of a contract when performance is due? Are you saying that that can't exist? Well, um, I mean, this kind of argument is a little bit like the, the libertarians and the, and the common law court kind of conspiracy guys that they always cite Black's Law Dictionary because they don't know anything about the law. Um, I mean, just because there's a definition and this because because the, the, the common the, the positive law that we're under the state, the state created in a sense positive law we're under has that concept that that's a libertarian concept um even in the can i i'm sorry can i can i rephrase the question then yeah yeah Uh, so 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 so, uh forget the uh dictionary uh definition do you think by me promising to do something for another person i therefore am morally obligated to perform the action that i promised to um i do but not as a libertarian. Moral obligations have nothing to do with libertarianism. Um, I do. I disagree with okay, Rothbard. Okay. By the way, he says that, that he says it can't be the of a contract. I disagree. I think that's too rigid of a rule. I think a promise can't be the basis of of a of a, of a contract. But the word promise can indicate your consent to transfer title because that's what's understood by it. So it's just a question of understanding the communication um, of the parties. But here. Let me, uh, even in even positive law in the Chicago School, right, which is has gained some dominance in the the law and economics, right, the interpretation of law. Um, they have something called um, the efficient. You can look this up on Wikipedia. I think the efficient breach of contract theory. So they think that um, if you breach a contract under the legal definition of breach, which means you don't perform your obligation, you shouldn't be made to pay. Very high damages, but only the damages um, uh, that are a consequence of the contract because they think that sometimes it's efficient to breach a contract. Uh, like if I could breach a contract and pay the other guy the damages I owe him, but if I, if I get more profit out of breaching it from the other deal I want to do, then the economy's better off and all this. That sort of dovetails with the Rothbardian and my view, which is that there is no such thing as breach of contract. So um, – if I fail to paint the fence, so let's just take a let, let's say you hire me to paint your fence, and I know you have a birthday party coming up. I know that's why you um, why you want it painted, um, and I failed to paint the fence. Even we don't even if we don't have 
uh, an explicit agreement for me to pay you damages if I don't paint the fence. I think it could be reasonable in some cases for there to be an implicit title transfer from me back to you, um, which would be called damages, but it wouldn't really be damages because it wouldn't be a breach. It would just be – there's two title, two title transfers set up. One is the payment of money to me in terms of payment if I paint the fence, and one is a payment of some kind of disincentive payment to you if I fail to paint the fence. So there's just two title transfers. So if I choose not to paint the fence, you might say it's immoral because it's just bad form, but but it's not really – a breach of it's not even trespass it's not even a breach of anyone's rights it's just an action that triggers a payment from me to you now so so let's take let's take the facebook case the, even the current law if you call it a breach of contract when facebook kicks me off um they still are not going to be forced by a court to put me back on their servers because the court doesn't order specific performance except in rare cases like real estate transfers because the, or, or the sale of a painting because those are unique, and there's money can't suffice for that. But for everything else, the law says we don't want to handle it. We don't want to micromanage it. We just want to order you to pay some money, and then it's over. Um, so all that would happen is Facebook is ordered to pay you some kind of money. So if they kick Tom Woods off… And he could sue them for breach of contract. It just means they have to pay him some some monetary damage. Tom would still be hurt. He still wouldn't be made whole. He would just get some monetary payment, and he'd have to go find another service. Um, Facebook would change their terms of service so they don't have to pay the money, money in the future, and they would just suffer. Their reputation would be harmed because everyone would know, well, hell, Facebook can kick me off whenever they want. They're kicking off people left and right for politically motivated reasons. Um, I don't trust them. They don't. They won't even agree to pay me or to guarantee that I have a slot there. Uh, so they're going to start losing customers, and they're going to lose their profits, and they're going to they're going to they're going to uh, implode. Keith, I want to make sure that the primary purpose of this was to sort of bring the three of us together. So I want to, and and you were kind of the dissenting voice here. So I want to make sure that. Um, uh, what's your? Have we modified your position? What are your? What what's happening with you? <laughs> so uh, the the problem is uh, I don't know you know nearly as much about law, so it's it's hard to you know determine whether or not I'm making just a moral argument or I'm making a libertarian justification or I'm just wrong in this as as I have been many uh, many times before. Uh, I just see libertarianism as the only morally justified uh, philosophical position. I think pretty much every other competing ideology believes in aggression and therefore slavery. So I want us at the front of this argument. So when everyone's seeing the blatant mistreatment of, you know, American Renaissance or Alex Jones or Stefan Molyneux, if our only position is, well, they're a private company, oh, well, so is Boeing and Raytheon and North Rock Grumman, they're not technically involved in aggression, but as Glenn Greenwald states, the Israeli government contacts Facebook so they could take down Palestinian resistance or any sort of uh, PLO organization. So we actually are dealing with co-conspirators, and we need to, I, I'm sorry, I think we should be uh, unapologetically 
anti-social media. It's not enough to just be anti-social media. We have to be active. I tried to quote the Joe Jorgensen thing. I'm sorry that failed. Uh-oh. So, um, so, so, so oh, um, yeah. I know, uh, I know that, um, you know, uh, being smart or having good arguments or writing books is not a principle of libertarianism. However, we should embrace all of those things. It's not, you have yeah. to write a book as good as democracy, the God that failed. Well, it's, that's not necessary, but we should be heavily uh, engaging in these activities, such as writing books, making good arguments, and not recog- and being able to differentiate moral business practices from immoral business practices. Because yep. if we just have to have standards of our own, or else who's going <laughs> who's going to take it? The leftists of uh, of Silicon Valley. I uh, certainly hope not. So um, I think you st- I, I'm just I'm going to have to watch this over again to find out even where I stand, or maybe there's uh, something I totally missed. Well, I. I think you segued us perfectly into Jeff Deist's um, article that he recently wrote that um, brings up the the most common argument I've heard against the the Facebook's let's say property right to kick you off and have you not come back and blah 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 is the one that they you know they were they're in bed with government and so let me just read these few paragraphs yeah. this is their excerpts here I won't go through the whole thing by any means. Um, So there was a talk by Tom Woods recently titled The COVID Cult with more than 1.5 million views. It was recorded at our live event in Texas two weeks ago. It offered challenges to the official narrative surrounding the coronavirus, particularly with respect to mask mandates. The speech was nothing less than a heartfelt tour de force against the terrible lockdowns and pseudoscience plaguing the debate over COVID and a call to re-examine trade-offs and priorities. It was, as you might imagine, a mix of unassailable data combined with our friend Tom's strong prescription for liberty and personal choice rather than centralized state eating. In other words, YouTube had no earthly business removing it. This kind of discourse seems to me to be the best and highest use for YouTube, its most important function. Um, Big Digital, as Professor Michael Rechtenwald terms tech companies, have become, quote, governmentalities, supposedly private enterprises turned into instruments of state power and state narratives. This sordid process is different for each company. Some are more complicit than others. A few are heroically non-compliant, but it involves a mix of early startup funding, connections and contracts with state agencies, particularly relating to defense and surveillance, and propaganda campaigns in service of state narratives. Rechtenwald explains this phenomenon in his own recent talk titled The Google Election. Quote, This is from the uh, uh, Richtenwald's talk. In short, Google, Facebook, and others are not strictly private sector entities. They are governmentalities in the sense that I have given uh, to the term. They are extensions and apparatuses of the state. Furthermore, these platforms are governmentalities with a particular interest in the growth and extension of governmentality itself. This includes championing every kind of subordinated and newly created identity class that they can find or create because such endangered categories require state acknowledgement and protection. Thus, the state's circumference continues to expand. Big digital is partial to the interests and growth of the state. It not only does business with statists, but also shares their values. This helps make sense of its leftist bent and their preference for the deep state Democrats. Leftism <laughs> is statism. Okay, so that's one of the most common arguments I have heard for um, sort of not being too concerned with the property rights of large companies like Google and Facebook. Um, back to you, Kinsella. Right. What are that's your thoughts? The, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. He's also 
made arguments in recent months, I believe, where he said he's sort of uh, deviating a bit on the defamation issue too, um, where you know he thinks that as a practical matter, if you if you defame someone, um, it does cause harm, and therefore that might be a cause of action. That's right. of course completely incompatible with Rothbard's hardcore proper libertarian view and libertarianism. Uh, you know, his knowledge, comma, true and false chapter in Ethics of Liberty uh, explains exactly why, and he's right, uh, that defamation law is simply not justifiable. Walter Block has sort of made a version of the argument that you're making here, that Dice seems to be making here, that it's not the contract breach argument. It's basically that their effect is like Walter sued the New York Times for defamation, even though Walter's against defamation law, because he said – they're fair game because they're basically part of the state. Uh, I'm leery of those arguments. They are—they're not really part of the state. They are—they are evil socialists. I will agree that. And they're—you know—if we have the libertarian Nuremberg war crimes tribunal someday after the after the revolution, some people that were promoting the state and supporting it might be held to account, I guess. But you know, I'd rather just have liberty and move on. But um, you know, so Walter's like the New York Times is an agent of state, so. It would be wrong for me to sue an innocent person of defamation because the defamation law is unjust, but it's okay to use that kind of force against a wing of the state. Um, and likewise, I guess the argument here is that um, Facebook and these companies are effectively governmentalities or part of the state, and therefore they should be held to constitutional limitations, I guess. Amendment free speech, so we're violating your constitutional rights. Uh, I'm leery of doing that because that's just giving the government more power to put private, more and more private actors under their ambit and, and basically regulate them. Uh, th that was the argument given for the Civil Rights Act. I'm sorry, for the um, whichever act it was in the 60s that basically um, uh, not only prohibited government, government agencies, uh, state governments, and federal whatever it was from. from discriminating racially against blacks and then women uh, because it violated the 14th amendment and all that kind of stuff but they 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 uh, they 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 restricted the property rights of private businesses like restaurants and things they call public accommodation saying uh, even even private companies can't discriminate based on race and things like that um, and that's an infringement of property rights there but the the argument is that well they're kind of a governmentality because they're 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 open to the public. They're serving a public function because they have the restaurant open to all comers, so they they have to let all comers come in. Uh, I'm leery of all these arguments because I want to restrict the power of the state, not give it power to uh, uh, classify some semi or mostly private actors like Facebook and like the New York Times as quasi-governmental as an excuse to regulate them and to um, do things like that. So I'm leery of those arguments. Um, I let, do me, think let me try and steal man it before. Let me try and steal man it real quick. Uh, go ahead. Just, just go ahead. Be, so like, um, let's imagine a company that, that currently in the, in current modern times makes roads and you know, most yeah. of the money they get to make roads with is money stolen from people extorted through taxes and then pays them, which then they use to create the roads. It would be as if it would be like for that company to then tell me that I'm not allowed to drive on the road that they use, you know, in part my stolen resources to create. Uh, they would say that, okay, yeah. well, Facebook takes tons of stolen money that that part of which belongs to you, Patrick. And now they're trying to tell you, you can't use their service. How can they do that? 
Well, let's let's unpack it. So in the case of the roads, you could make at least a coherent libertarian argument that uh, money is stolen from me as a taxpayer. The, the state collects it, and then they give most of it to this private contractor uh, to – I don't know to, – to, to build a road, and then I guess the private company owns the road now. So you could argue that I have a, a claim of restitution from the state and also from the, to get that money back. Um, basically, you could say that uh, I am a, I am really the true owner. Or the oh, if they don't let me use it, then they're increasing the damage done to me. So you could make that argument. In fact, I made an argument like that in my in my argument against open borders in immigration uh, by arguing that the roads are owned by the citizens as taxpayers, and they have the right to use those roads because they're the true owners. But immigrants from outside the U.S. are not victims of the U.S. state or they're not taxpayers, so they don't have – if they're denied the right to use those roads in public spaces by the by the INS, for example, then their rights aren't violated because it's not their property. So if you simply denied all outsiders the right to use all public spaces that are truly owned by the American citizen taxpayers, then that would radically reduce immigration because you can't come into the U.S. unless you use a road basically. Um, and that would be a form of immigration control that was compatible with libertarian principles. So I've kind of made that argument um, before to a degree. But, to, to be um, clear for the audience, it, I, I argued against that argument. I think it started with Christopher Chase Rachels, and I didn't know that you had written on it uh, from that angle as well. I definitely disagree with that. Maybe that's maybe that's our next show. But um, uh, yeah, and and I I don't I mean I'm not really against immigration. I, I was just explaining that if immigrants. If outside, if 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 uh, what do you call them? Outside, if uh, foreigners are not permitted to use, uh, if if I don't permit a foreigner to use my house, that's not a violation of his rights. And if the government doesn't let him use the roads, it's not a violation of his rights either because he doesn't own the roads. The only way to argue against that is this argument that some libertarians make that all government property is unowned and subject to homesteading. But I don't believe that. I think that some property the government prevents us from using like the wilderness um you could say that's unknown because it's not developed by anyone so that is subject to homesteading but roads and buildings are clearly owned they're just owned by the state legally but the true owner is the or all the peaceful innocent tax citizens for it and they have a better claim on it for restitution so um i'm not we really could literally go for three hours yeah. these are so interesting such yeah. interesting topics yeah Keith, did you have anything to say? Nope. Uh, this has been a uh, pleasure to speak with uh, Patrick and uh, Mr. Kinsella. Uh, my whole point is that I think we need to sort of elevate our criticism. So when we say uh, private good, public bad, I don't think that gets to the heart of it. As Murray Rothbard says in... I think it's for a new liberty or ethics of liberty. Imagine, just before disbanding itself, the state gives Kentucky to the Kennedys and New York to the Rockefellers. Are they the, now the just owners, since, you know, they're a group of private no. individuals? The, the answer is obviously no, because according to Correct. the root theory, the root principle of libertarianism, original appropriation, as Hans Hoppe states in Democracy, the God That Failed, uh, that is just an illegitimate contract that tyrant A gives to tyrant B with C's property that they have no right to claim on any more than I have the right to you know, sell Patrick's house to Stefan because, you know, uh, I... Uh, 
claim a social contract gives me the right to. So now uh, I'm just but, attempting to sort of elevate uh, the uh, discussion here. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with all that. Uh, Patrick, let me ask a question. So what's the analogy to Facebook, though, in the road case? Because where did where did the federal government pay Facebook with taxpayer dollars? Like how, how could you make that argument that they don't really own their servers? Well, to be clear, I was that's not my argument. I was trying to pull in an argument that uh, I've heard often from people. And so they would I think early on, Facebook was a project from the CIA. So it was literally founded with public money. Um, they get uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars every year. Uh, I, I think it's tens of thousands every month or something like that uh, for responding to spy requests from government agencies from the U.S., um, so they, they get oh. tons and tons of money and they collude with the government to, uh, you know, uh, provide our data upon warrant and all that stuff. And they get paid a lot of money for that. It's a good business for Facebook to cooperate with the government um, and to collude with the government. Let me let me mention let me mention a blog post of mine. Some some listeners might find. So Rothbard uh, had an argument in the 60s when his more leftist phase um, where he argued that the, like universities were basically effectively agents of the state and they could be they could be attacked by the students doing all the sit-ins and they could be homesteaded by them but later on he sort of backed like uh, about five, seven years later 1974 he backed he backed off of that and uh said basically that um if there's property that there's there's basically original sin in the in the property like you can trace it back to an act of theft that doesn't mean that the current owner can be just divested of it uh, as long as they're innocent basically you know and they weren't they weren't they didn't they're not the ones who stole it uh, and that's in my i think i have some blog posts one's called rothbard on the original sin in land titles 1969 versus 1974 where he sort of uh, and a lot of the left just like kevin carson and these guys they they quote Rothbard from 1969, but they don't quote the extra paragraph that he added to the later reprint of that article where he sort of backs off on that. That's kind of interesting. So, um, And I'm with the more modern Rothbard. Um, I'm just leery of, of, of calling them agents of the state, um, even if the CIA did give Facebook some money. Look, the government subsidizes lots of corporations and businesses and even people. I mean, you know, they just gave out a bunch of covid checks to to tens of millions of people in the country I, that doesn't mean i own part of their house now um <laughs> you know although although i've i've jokingly argued in the past that you know if i live next to a democrat i'm entitled to sneak over into his yard and steal his lawnmower as restitution if i can get away with it uh, but you know as a practical matter that's self that has the problem of self-help you know being biased in your own case and also uh you know it's a little vigilante-ish but theoretically he's violating my rights by supporting the state and so i'm entitled to some restitution so i can steal his lawnmower Okay, let's um, let's wrap up then. I have a few questions from the audience. First, I want to start by thanking King, the CEO of Float. He's over on Float right now. He just did a super chat for $10. He said that IQ is greater than IP. Thank you for your support, uh, King. I appreciate it. Thank you for everything you do on the Float website. You guys are awesome, and I am trying to watch Float chat. Uh, then we have some questions here. Um, these are from uh, Cotblock Hot Springs. Uh, he says, so TOS is not a contract because there is no reciprocal give and take. Um, so I think this is a basic no, contract no. question, right? Does a contract require give no, and take? At, no. So that's 
So the comp contract to be binding, and remember, they're thinking of contracts as enforceable obligations. There has to be consideration. Okay. Now, I think that's actually an unlibertarian notion. Um, in the civil law, the other big legal system that is in Louisiana and most of Europe other than England, um, you don't have to have consideration. You have to have cause, which I think makes sense, but not consideration. Um, I think a contract is just transfer of title of property from one person to the other. So even a donation, like if I give you an apple as a gift, in a sense, that's a functional transfer of title to a resource, and that's perfectly binding transfer of title. So you can call that a contract. Some contracts are reciprocal. That is, my transfer of title to you of my object that I own is conditioned upon you either doing something, in the case of a service contract, or you giving me title to something that you own, two title transfers. Um, um, so I simply think that a contract has to involve at least one transfer of title to some property that's owned. In the case of Facebook, the customer is not paying any money, and Facebook is not giving anything that they own to the customer. So there's, there's really no contract. The only contract contractual aspect of it is – Facebook owns its servers, and they're permitting you to use it. So they're giving their consent for you to temporarily use it. Like if I let someone sit in my car or drive my car for an hour or borrow it or they borrow my knife or they come to my house for dinner as the owner or if I allow someone to kiss me or have sex with me, in all those cases, it's the owner of a resource using their ownership right to grant consent, uh, to grant permission or to deny permission. Um so in that sense, the Facebook relationship is contractual in that the owner of the resource is permitted resources, but it can be it can be withdrawn at any time. Just like you can change your mind uh, about having sex or entering a boxing or uh, kicking guests out of your house at a dinner party. Okay, let me. I'm going to try and combine some of these questions together in the for the sake of time. Uh, so the next one is, so if UFace invites you to their servers, you purchase computers to do so, then UFace denies you access, can't you sue for costs? Uh, LawMart offers free internet. Is it really free if they're using my data to track and sell? How is this different from UFace? On the first question, again, that's more of a detrimental reliance argument, and I think that's an invalid theory because it's circular. Um, again, if you want, if you want to... Uh, uh, Invest in these computer servers you need to start up your little Facebook uh, uh, community or whatever. Um, if you want to be sure that that investment won't go to waste, you need to pay for it. You need to basically buy insurance by being willing to pay an extra fee to Facebook um, for that security. And if they won't grant you that, if they refuse to negotiate that or if they charge a price that you don't want to pay, then you're taking the risk. So I okay. think it's – you know. Be a big okay. uh, what was the second? What was the second part? Uh, if LawMart offers free internet, is it really free if they're using my data to track and sell? How is this different from UFace? No, it's not free. Uh, uh, but the, but that's the that's the terms. That's the condition of you. you that's like saying uh, I will let you come into my house for a dinner party, but only if you uh, help me set the table first. You know, uh, and if you don't help me set the table, then I'm not going to invite you over because you're not a good guest. <laughs> All right. Uh, and if you see. don't want to set the table, don't don't enter my house. If you don't want to, if you want to let them have your data, don't use their free service or their otherwise free service. 
If a company acquires a business license, why are they not required to follow the constitution of that state? If they don't like the law, they can go somewhere else. So this is this is a thing. I, I get the same argument from like sovereign citizen types when they say like if you sign mm-hmm. the papers to get a driver's license, well, you're consenting to the state. It's like yeah. No, if yeah. you don't get a driver's license, you are under threat of violence. So you're doing yep. what you need to do to defend yourself. It's a self-defensive contract thing. Same with a company. If I file, if I sign scribbles and sign papers to keep myself from being attacked for running a company, yep. well, that's that's self-defense. That's not consent to anything. I think that argument is a hybrid of two arguments. One is the social contract argument, which we don't agree with as libertarians. And the other one is sort of this nebulous idea that contract, uh, the corporations get some kind of special privilege from the state and therefore uh, – in fact, the state uses this argument. The state regulates corporations, and they, they have a corporate income tax, which is in effect double taxation of the shareholders, right? Uh, and their argument for that is that, well, we're granting privileges to the corporation, and therefore we can condition the grant of those privileges on this, the, the corporation agreeing to some regulations and things. Um, but the problem with that is… Is that there's a fallacy there in the there's a commonly held belief that the the, corp, the state grants privileges to corporations that they wouldn't have on the free market, and that's just false. As Robert Hessen has debunked in the 70s, and which I and 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 Roger Pallon and others like Rothbard have written, basically it's this limited liability grant which says shareholders are not liable to people that employees of the corporation harm in a tort. Um, uh, and but I think that's not a privilege that the state grants you. That's the natural position that would happen on a free market because you're not liable for other people's torts unless there's a special relationship, like you're the employer and they're the employee or something like that, and that's called vicarious liability or respondeat superior. So if the state disappeared and we had a radical anarcho-capitalist society, you could have people get together and by contract form or business organizations. They could call them whatever they want. They can call them corporations or whatever. Just like if people want to get married that are gay and they want to say they're married, they have the right to call it whatever they want. You know what I mean? So I can call it a corporation, and I wouldn't. And the shareholders who guess invested money in this corporation wouldn't necessarily have liability for torts or 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 acts done by employees of the corporation because they didn't. Perform them, so you don't need the state to grant you this this limited liability in the first place. So it's not a privilege. Okay, last two, and then we'll wrap a, it up. Go ahead, Keith. Just a just a clarification on if you don't like it, you can move. Well, if you don't like the business, well, more or less you can complain. If you don't like the business, go to another one. Well, isn't that uh, just what we say about or status say about the country? If you don't like, you know, the laws in America, you should move. This again does not appreciate the foundational principle of original appropriation. Uh, I have a quote here from uh, Chase Rachel's in Spontaneous Order where he just nails it. He says, The illegitimacy of the state rests on the fact that it exercises control over resources that its agents never acquired through original appropriation or voluntary exchange, and it does so without the consent of the rightful owners of said resources. So I I do get that a lot where people are like, well, you signed a W-2 or uh, you agreed uh, to, you know, 
competing governments are the same as competing organizations. You have to deal with one of them in order to live. Therefore, companies and businesses are the same thing. It, again, has just gotten us into the mindset of private good, public bad. We need to brainlessly defend one or the other without getting to uh, the principles. So uh, that is my position uh, in response to that allegation. Nice. Okay. Um, I can't pronounce your name. Ben Shahar. Are written marriage contracts enforceable for damages for breach? Uh, this will take us far afield, but in brief summary, the way I would libertarians uh, would be a, a marriage is just a private, non-legal, and certainly should be a non-state, and there should be a state, but uh, a marriage is just a relationship that people enter into. And uh, uh, they can call it they can call it whatever they want. And if, if you know if three if three lesbians and a nun get together and they call themselves married, and if the rest of society doesn't choose to use the word marriage for that because it's it, it, it it's not the traditional type, then that's just a matter of civil society. Uh, but I do believe that certain relationships have legal consequences. Um, and in the law, like in the civil law in, in my home state of Louisiana, it's called matrimonial regimes, and that's more of a property and a contract aspect. So in other words, uh, if two people engage in an activity together, there can be legal consequences. Like if I let you ride in my car with me, then I'm, a plus, I'm giving you a, a license or permission to use my car, to sit in my car, right? So there's – a natural activity has some legal consequences. Likewise, if two people get married or call themselves married… Then that can have legal consequences like co-ownership of property, uh, visitation rights at hospitals in times of this, uh, uh, power of attorney type rights to make medical decisions if the other one's incapacitated, uh, guardianship rights uh, over children. These are all the legal incidents that flow from this private relationship, and they're essentially contractual. And whatever the legal system is in society, of course, ought to enforce and respect these con contracts. And the will of the parties, um, and if the state monopolizes marriage as it's done, uh, then it has the obligation to make sure its legal system respects the wishes of the parties. And so if it says you can only have a marriage – legal incidents of a marriage – definition of marriage, and that has to be a man and a woman, then it's the state's fault for denying enforceability of a similar regime that flows from a homosexual union. And I think they should be forced to do that, forming gay couples by not allowing their unions to be uh, – the legal aspects of it to be legally enforced. Uh, whether you – if you have to call it marriage for it to get the benefit of that, then the state – that's the state's rules, so fine. So I've been for gay marriage in that sense for 20 years or 15 years. Um, uh, but in a free market, in a free society… Uh, you would just have people get together and have this arrangement. It'd be like a little corporation in a sense, right? And the legal aspects of aspects of it would be recognized by the property and contract law uh, of the legal system. Okay, so we're not going to get to most of the remaining questions. Um, this will be the last one. Um, can a business? This is from Adian Godin. Can a business owner walk up and put their hand over your mouth because they don't like what you say in their store? They could ask you to leave, but they could not physically prevent your speech. I like if 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 my terms for entering my house is that you do not utter the word Facebook. Well, you cannot utter the word Facebook in my house on pain of getting evicted. What what do you guys have to say about that? Keith, you want to take a stab and then I can 
give my two cents. So as far as um, that, you can make any uh, terms to your body and your property. So in other words, you're only allowed to come in inside uh, my house if you have a mask or uh, you're only allowed if, you know, you want to sleep with me or something like that. While these might be ridiculous, yes, you have the right to exclude people. You have the right to say, I'm not doing business with anyone. And then you can start making terms. All right, I'll do business with some people if they meet the criteria of having masks or I will uh, exclude Democrats, communists, people advocating the end of the family, etc. Uh, yes, you would be morally justified in doing that. If he's, um, or no, at first I thought it was uh, asking about the mask mandates. And those I almost question because we don't know what businesses think because it's always the state governor saying when you're right. inside of a business, you have to do it. So it's almost like you, you just have to go in without one. And if they don't correct you, then you know this is a place where they don't care. And I think you should you, you should uh, totally respect that. So um, yes, they are morally justified in putting their hand over your mouth to stop you from communicating. If uh, that is the general understanding beforehand, just walking up to someone and physically touching them, I think that would be an invasion. This is what I would consider uh, physical interference with the bodily autonomy of other individuals. I think you need to give them, uh, hey, uh, I don't like what you're saying. You have to get out now. You can't say you're a trespasser and then blow their head off. You have to give them, I don't know, 20 30 seconds to get out, something reasonable. Uh, I, of course, don't have uh, the, the exact answer for that. That is how I would try to approach uh, that situation using, you know, common sense morality along with libertarian fundamentals. Right. I would roughly agree with that. And, and by the way, that argument contradicts your, your easement argument Facebook because Facebook could kick you out even though they didn't say they could. Uh, it's understood. Uh, if, if someone comes into your house and you say no one may – say this word or whatever in my house, that doesn't mean that you can put your hand over their mouth because um, all it means is that you can you can tell them to leave. But you already had the right to tell them to leave. And then if they refuse to leave after you, you told them, you would say at a certain point they do become a trespasser, and I think at a certain point force could be used to, to kick them out. And if they fight hard enough, I mean it could even be – Lethal because if they pull a gun out and they they fight you off, you could shoot them. I mean, it, you know, if if they escalate it, it could get as violent as necessary. Uh, but it, it, but it's not an act of trespass when they mouth the word. They've done something that they know is going to get them kicked out. All right. Well, guys, thanks for joining us today. This has been a really fun show. I hope to have both of you back for many more of these discussions. This is what I live for. So uh, thank you guys for participating in chat. A lot of great questions and comments today. Thanks for being respectful in the comments. I appreciate that, too. That's a rare thing these days on the Internet. Uh, guys, do you have any uh, final thoughts or last words? You want to uh, pimp your platforms and where people can find more information about you? Nothing really uh, content-wise else uh, for me. If uh, people could please check out my library and BitChute channels along with my YouTube. Uh, my channel is Keith Knight. Don't tread on anyone. I'm at about 590 videos uh, and interviews attempting to advocate the principles of self-ownership, uh, truth in history, free exchange of ideas, and uh, philosophical libertarianism. Um. I have been working on a book for quite a while, which is an edited 
selection of some of my articles that cover a lot of the theory that I'm relying upon here. Um, and hopefully I'll have it done in, in a, just a two or three months. Uh, it's going to be called Law in a Libertarian World, so stay tuned for that. It'll be free online everywhere and sold in paper at a basically a cost. So, and it's already online, and the old the old articles are online already on my website, stephankinsella.com. So, that's my next project. And then and then I'm going to work on a, a new IP book called Copy This Book, which is a, a restatement of all the stuff I've learned over the last 20 years discussing all these issues. I'm looking forward to that right now. All right. All right, guys. Thanks for watching. We will see you next time.